Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season nine, episode 10, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the dark folk film Midsommar. It was written and directed by Ari Aster and stars Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, William Jackson Harper, Wilhelm Blomgren, and Will Poulter. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you please read us the plot summary? Sure. Danny, who is reeling from the recent traumatic loss of her family, remains in a toxic relationship with her boyfriend of four years. She tags along with him and his friends to attend the midsummer ritual of the Harga, a peaceful yet secretive group that lives in the middle of the Swedish woodlands. But things are not what they seem. The Harga reveal their true practices and rituals which involve voluntary suicide, murder, drugs, and ethically questionable sex magic. Danny, caught in the middle, feels torn between her old ways of codependency and this new sense of community. Will she return to America after witnessing what the Harga have to offer? Or will she drop her defenses and become one of them? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the production aspect of the show. Um, I am uh, not going to say a whole lot. Because if you haven't already uh, seen the runtime of this episode, <laughs> it's going to be kind of long. So, you know, there's not much I really want to talk about in the production. Um, but I will say that according to David Edelstein, quote, Be Real Films, a Swedish film company, produced Midsommar alongside Square Peg with A24 Distributing. And Square Peg, I know, is Ari Aster's production company. According to writer-director Ari Aster, he had been approached by B-Real executives to helm a slasher film set in Sweden, an idea which he initially rejected as he felt that he had no way into the story. Aster ultimately devised a plot in which the two central characters are experiencing a relationship are experiencing relationship tensions verging on a breakup and wrote the surrounding screenplay around this theme. He described the result as, quote, a breakup movie dressed in the clothes of a folk horror film, unquote. Uh, I know that Astor has stated that this breakup uh, was inspired by a relationship that he had just left, uh, minus the burning bear, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um imagine being that person that like just broke up with him and then going to see this movie and being like what the fuck um <laughs> yikes <laughs> Ooh, dodged a bullet <laughs> yeah yes 
seriously. But, you know, I was watching this interview with Ari Aster, and he said that um, there's a lot of Danny in him, mm, or okay. a lot of, of him in Danny, I guess I should say. Yep. Um, but he said that he, there's also a lot of himself in Christian as well. He says that, you know, I said he said in this interview, like, he has been on both sides of a breakup, basically. Mm, yep. So he understands both of them in a way which is good i think and i that kind of goes with the theme of the ethics that come with this film yeah which we'll talk about but um according to richard newby aster speaking to the verge in 2018 says quote i exhausted the horror section of every video store i could find unquote and uh, he did this from a young age, and whether intentional or not, Midsummer is populated with references and allusions to these horror films that he really liked. And most apparent, of course, is The Wicker Man from 1973, mm-hmm. Robin Hardy's musical-influenced exploration into pagan horror, and The Failure of Christianity, which we have an episode about, everybody, so check it out. Yes. Uh, he also based the film on Toby Hooper's sun-soaked nightmare, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. And Danny's emotional and mental instability made worse by her mate being seduced by a pale red-haired woman in a similar scenario in John Hancock's Let's Scare Jessica to Death. That film ends with the titular Jessica confessing nightmares or dreams, madness or sanity, I don't know which is which, and it's those same sentiments which see which we see across Danny's face at the end of the film unquote uh we also have a texas chainsaw massacre episode it is our very first episode (laughs) so listen with caution good luck with that one everyone (laughs) uh and we also have a let's scare jessica to death episode as well so please check out all three of those if you'd like to i guess see the films that inspired midsummer Mm mm-hmm so according to Box Office Mojo, quote, Midsommar grossed $27.5 million in the United States and Canada and $20.5 million in other territories for a worldwide total of $48 million on a budget of only $9 million. Wow. Yeah, so it did pretty good. Uh, <laughs> according to the article, is Midsommar a feminist fable? Quote, Midsommar is sinister but also captivating, even exquisite. Part of its power to fascinate and disturb lies in its dual nature. Whether the ending is a happy one and whether Christian deserved his fate divides opinion, unquote. He did. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, like I said, we're not going to go too much into production. There's so much more to talk about. Um, If you want to, like learn a little bit more about what inspired Ari Aster to make the film and other behind the scenes stuff. Like definitely check out um, interviews with Ari Aster. There's a ton on YouTube. Um, There's also a great interview that he does for Eli Roth's horror podcast. And even though I am a little bit iffy about Eli Roth. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Um, his podcast is pretty good. His producer, who is also on the podcast, asks a lot of great questions to Ari Aster. So definitely check it out. 
Hmm. Okay. Buckle the fuck up because <laughs> this is going to be a wild ride into this film. Okay. Sure is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, the Bechtel test, after I did some digging, I found out that it technically does pass the test. Uh, Danny and Connie only discuss their relationships for the most part. Um, and when they don't, they still mention at least Connie's fiance, Simon. They mm-hmm. do mention him. I think the one time that they don't talk about an actual relationship, I think. Um, but um, the Harga women do talk to Danny quite often about things other than men. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Harga women are not given names in the film, but in the credits, they are, they do have names. Like they're all credited with names. Oh, okay. They're not like Harga Woman 1, Harga Woman 2. Like, they have names. <laughs> so, so technically it does pass. I mean, this is similar to our Gretel and Hansel episode. Like, that technically passes because the witch has a name, even though it's never said in the mm-hmm. film. She is credited with a name. So, anyway, it's a technicality, but we're going to go with it. Um, Nancy's Dream Team test was the supporting cast at least 50% women. I would say yes, if you count all of the Harga women, and because they do have names, I kind of want to. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the main cast, no. Danny is technically the only leading cast member uh, who is female, but the supporting cast is mostly women. So, yes, it does pass. Did a woman write, direct, produce, shoot, or edit the film? No. I was actually kind of surprised by this. Uh, was the final girl or main character a person of color? No, there are only three people of color in this film, and all three of them die. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rough. So that is a little rough. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No, but there is a lot of queer coding and subtext in the film, which we'll be discussing at the end of this episode. Okay, so let's get into our discussion. Let's start with (laughs) Persephone and mythology in Midsommar. So I want to start off with this quote by Joseph Campbell from his book, Goddesses, Mysteries of the Feminine Divine. He says about the goddess Persephone, Persephone is abducted by Hades and taken to the underworld. She is the fruit of the fields in the underworld who is to come forth again. By going down into the underworld and coming up again, she is reproducing the history of the grain, of the wheat, of the food of the people. She is a personification of this energy, but she is a personification of other things as well, namely the power of the underworld. From the point of view of the upper world, Persephone is is the abducted daughter, but below the surface, she is the queen of the underworld. Oh. So Danny as the May Queen, seems to be a literal reincarnation of Persephone. From the outside, right, depending on your point of view, I suppose, of the film, it could seem like Danny is abducted and, you know, we'll talk more about this, like, brainwashing and stuff later in the episode, but 
she is abducted by this cult and made into a queen, I guess, or she's made down, you know, made into a queen in the underworld. But Mm -hmm. from another perspective, like she, she is a ruler now. Like she has power now. So I think that it's interesting from different perspectives, Persephone could be seen as either a victim or a willing participant. Right. And like I said, this very much reflects how maybe certain audience members see Danny and see her in the film. Um, And according to Sandra Huber, quote, the Greek goddess Persephone is interesting to Midsommar in part for her connection like Danny to the worlds of both the living and the dead. But she bears other similarities. Often Persephone is depicted as a young woman carrying a torch, not unlike the torch Danny carries after being crowned May Queen. Persephone, furthermore, is associated with spring growth and is the mistress of the Furies, uh, the demons of revenge. There is something here about otherworldly light, not of life and not of death, but of rebirth. It is also curious that there are several instances in the film where the visitors of Harga are given mysterious herbs, potions, and mind-altering substances that, in the end, could be seen to fatally bind them, like Persephone, to the place where those herbs have grown. The tie between Persephone, Potions, Blood, and the Underworld points, on the one hand, to the different perceptions that can arise from the spillage of conscious experience, and on the other hand, to the way that such spillage reevaluates units such as family, friend, couple, loss, and mourning. It is not perhaps that Danny longs to have her mother back, we know nothing of their relationship, but she longs to feel the longing, the right, the search. It is through loss that Demeter, and Persephone are reunited at all, and that spring blooms from winter, unquote. And for those who might not know, Demeter is uh, Persephone's mother, uh, who um, Demeter makes every, uh, every, all the foliage and the fruit and everything die because she misses Persephone. Mm-hmm. And then when Persephone comes back, everything is beautiful again, basically. Right. So Danny does have a vision of her sister and both of her parents at one point. But she all, only sees her mother after she is crowned the May Queen, which I find interesting. So if we want to also connect that to Persephone. Yeah. Persephone misses her mother while she's in the underworld. And this is when she becomes the queen of the underworld. And this is almost like a reflection of that. You know, Danny sees her mother and misses her during this time of basically becoming royalty, you know, in this moment. So I thought that that was an interesting connection there. Yeah. I mean, this whole film screams Greek mythology from the depictions of the Harga to the oracle and like human sacrifice and suffering but also the rites of spring and warm weather so i definitely i love that connection to persephone and demeter i think that's really great yeah absolutely of course i got a read from the book women who run with wolves by dr clarissa pincola estes who uses the story of persephone to describe the quote-unquote woman's journey And she says, quote, so off we go down into a different world under a different sky with unfamiliar ground beneath our boots, unquote. 
And she also talks about how Persephone need not be dragged into the underworld by a dark god, but that she goes on her own accord. And in doing so, she is transformed there and learns a deep knowing there and ascends again to the outer world. Yeah, and Estes also says, like Persephone before her and the life-death-life goddesses before her, the maiden finds her way into a land where there are magical orchards and a king awaits her. The old religion now begins to glow in this tale with more and more intensity. In Greek myths, there were two trees twined over the door to the underworld, and Elysium, the place where the dead who had been found virtuous were sent. Elysium is described as a place of perpetual day, where souls may elect to be reborn on earth whenever they please. It is the doppelganger, the double of the topside world. Difficult things may occur here, but their meaning and the learning they provide are different from those in the topside world. In the topside world, all is interpreted in the light of simple gains and losses. In the underworld or other world, all is interpreted in light of the mysteries of true sight, right action, and the development of becoming a person of intense inner strength and knowing. Wow. Well, that sounds just like it, so. <laughs> the Harga. Yeah. Right? Listen, Ari when Esther. I read that, when I read that, I almost jumped off my chair. Like, I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> I couldn't believe that description. I mean, and then the camera, even when they go to um, where the Harga are, mm -hmm. the camera turns upside down. Like they are going from the top side to the underworld. Right. So the fact that the underworld, when Persephone is there, is this bright and beautiful place where she learns all of this, all of these dark secrets that help her become this mature woman is kind of cool that it's very similar to what happens in Midsummer. So oh, absolutely. I think there's definite ties to... There's got to be. Ari Aster probably read this and was like, hmm, yes, <laughs> my little Persephone. Um, I think so. I think that there is a there is definitely some inspiration. I've never heard him talk about Persephone for Midsummer, but I mean, we've talked about how myths and legends and all of that is just sort of ingrained into our system anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's basically a part of our our culture as mm -hmm. humans <laughs> so um i wouldn't be surprised if it was even just unintentional too that is true yeah especially when you're a really great storyteller like ari aster so absolutely hmm. yeah so interesting yeah so let's uh so we talked about persephone in greek mythology let's talk about like the fairy tale connection that is shown in this film because Ari Aster does compare this to a fairy tale and in one interview he said he goes I keep I keep comparing this to a fairy tale and I'm not sure if that is quite accurate but I I think it is I think I think he was right when he kept saying it was I do a too. fairy tale yeah yeah and and well I'll we'll defend our reasoning behind that in a second but uh let's talk about the fairy tale connection especially magic mirrors and psychedelics 
uh, in the story. Yeah. <laughs> so according to Richard Newby, quote, fairy tales have a wealth of horror of disguised witches, of blood rites made on the tips of needles, of animalistic transformations, and of realizations that there's no place like home. Aster sticks to the fairy tale format throughout Midsummer, not only in terms of narrative structure, but also characters who serve as allusions to classic archetypes. Danny is the poor, emotionally so, maiden who travels to a faraway land and discovers her royal birthright. Christian Christian is the inept prince whose failures lead to an animalistic transformation. Mark is the jester, is the jester whose foolishness is his demise. Josh is the wizard whose quest is to acquire more knowledge, but it comes at a deadly cost. And Pele is the noble knight, the servant of the Harga, who rescues, quote-unquote, the <laughs> fair maiden, Danny and ensures her place on the throne, unquote. And according to The Take, quote, like Dorothy in Oz, Danny endures a traumatic event that upends her world before meeting fantastical strangers who help lead her over the metaphorical rainbow, in this case using drugs, sex, and death. And we realize that while her hapless friends may be trapped inside a horror film, Danny is in her own personal fairy tale, one that's really a journey of self-discovery. Ari Aster said, quote, this is a folk horror movie, but for Danny, for the main character, it's sort of a perverse wish fulfillment fantasy, unquote. So structurally, it definitely plays out like a fairy tale. And much like how Dorothy kills the witch by throwing water on her, or really like how Gretel burns the witch and Snow White makes her stepmother dance at her wedding wearing hot iron shoes, Danny tortures and kills the antagonist in her story, which happens to be her boyfriend. <laughs> Sorry. And, yeah, so that kind of is interesting that, you know, it's not a mother figure mm -hmm. that is burned at the end or, or, you know, a matriarchal figure that is burned at the end. I guess you could argue, though, that Christian is sort of Danny's keeper. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, they both are obviously trapped in this relationship because they both just can't let go of each other. Right. Um. So I'm wondering if maybe if we think of like Rapunzel, right, how her mother was basically like traps her in mm -hmm. this in her tower. And that's sort of like what happens maybe here. Uh, and Christian kind of plays the matriarchal figure in the fairy tale version, at least. Right. I also want to point out how this film kind of feels like um, one of Aesop's fables, like, but for relationships and new beginnings. <laughs> like, it's obviously a fairy tale for adults, but it, it kind of has that ring to it, like a tale of caution about what happens when you put all of your eggs in one basket, when it might not be good for you in the long run. <laughs> Especially for maybe someone like Christian, who ends up burnt alive in a bear suit at the end. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's let's actually look at some more fairy tale themes that are in the film. Mm -hmm. According to Donald Haas from their essay on feminist fairy tale scholarship, Christina Bachkeliga 
conceptualized the magic mirror as something more subtle than a static image that could be simply shattered or replaced with a truer mirror to reveal women's real or natural identity. Unlike scholar Rose, who subscribed to the idea that women might create a more accurate mirror to reflect her natural pattern of development, Bakchaliga understood that mirrors, even those created by women, are neither natural objects nor unmediated reflections of what is natural. As with all mirrors, refraction and the shaping presence of a frame mediate the fairy tale's reflection. As it images our potential for transformation, the fairy tale refracts what we wish or fear to become human and thus changeable. Ideas, desires, and practices frame the tale's images. Furthermore, if we see more of the mirror rather than its images, questions rather than answers emerge. I think it works really well with this because when Danny sees her sister in the mirror while she is in Sweden, like in the porter potty, um, yeah. She sees her when she's about to have a breakdown. Mm -hmm. And this could be seen as her wishing not to be what she sees in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't really know a whole lot about Danny's relationship with her family, but we might be able to guess from this scene that she fears becoming her sister. Yeah. Or, as Bacheliga says... What we see in the mirror could also be a wish fulfillment in fairy tales. So Danny might have suicidal thoughts, much like her sister did. Mm-hmm. Or maybe this shows her desire to have her sister return, since her sister is seen standing behind her rather than as Danny's reflection, mm. if that makes sense. Yep. So they're standing together rather than Danny seeing herself as her sister. Right. So I'm wondering if that's sort of, or maybe it's all of it. Maybe it's just all of that. Um, So that, I think, because I think that's the only mirror scene that we see in this entire film, right? We do see her look in the mirror when she's in the airplane, but we don't see anything. Right. And she does look in the mirror, I think, when she's on the phone with her friend and she takes her medication to help calm her down. Yep. But this is the one time where she's in front of a mirror and we actually see, she actually sees her sister or sees one of her, sees a family member that has passed. Which is also interesting because she's on drugs during this scene too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and she's on drugs that are not her her, her prescribed drugs. Right. Speaking of drugs, <laughs> <laughs> according to Sandra Huber, quote, the potions throughout Midsummer can be seen as affect runes all their own, a language like blood that signals the descent or ascent into another state. There is a mythological component to the flora and fauna in Midsummer in general, and one thing that brings the viewer closer to the world of the dead. Production designer Hein... Henrik Svensson has noted the importance of plants in the film and mentions the pervasiveness of rapeseed on location as inspiring, in part an homage to yellow that runs throughout the foliage of the film. Hmm. But the potions throughout the film are largely unnamed, which leaves the arena open to speculation. Out of curiosity, I asked Montreal horticulturalist Brendan Burkett to help identify some of the plants in various scenes. He isolated Artemisia ludovinciana, 
or white sagebush, a sibling to mugwort that itself has long been used by skyers. According to alchemist Heliophilus, for awakening the third eye prior to ritual. So that makes sense. Burkett identified a like goldenrod as well. Um, and those were the majority of the yellow flowers spread out on the Harga dining tables throughout the film. Okay. And noted that the flowers ground into potions in the motar and pet pestle bear a resemblance to a uh, witch hazel. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so the variety of potions in Midsummer seem to have an equal variety of functions. Danny drinks a potion infused with yellow flowers before beginning her dance around the maypole, and a yellow potion is coaxed onto Christian by Ola before he is used to impreg- impregnate Maya, unquote. So there's also mushrooms. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> at, the, at the start of this journey. Um, so drugs... In fantasy tales and fairy tales is nothing new. I mean, we've talked about it and we talked about it in our Gretel and Hansel episode. Right. And um, Ari Aster has called this film the The Wizard of Oz for perverts. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And The Wizard of Oz does have poppies in it. Okay. That the the travelers ingest accidentally. Yep. Um, And this is right before they see the wizard, which is kind of interesting. Obviously, Alice in Wonderland references drug use and even addiction quite often. Um, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings characters use drugs recreationally. And according to the essay, More on Witches or Possible Drug Use in Fairy Tales, quote, some people think witches use the plant belladonna, lethal in large doses. In smaller doses, it causes hallucinations, and especially in combination with other plants, such as opium, makes a flying ointment that makes you feel like you are floating through the air. Oh, God. No. Yes. And toad licking... (laughs) In association with the fairy tale The Frog Prince, which was another way to get psychedelic visions. Some people think this phenomenon could have led <clears throat> could have led to the image of kissing a frog and seeing a handsome prince where none was before. Unquote. Oh dear. Oh. <laughs> Yes, so according to Frank M. Dugan, quote, fungi are manifest in uh, a lot of folk tales and fairy tales and in folk remedies and rituals. Sometimes fungi play an incidental role in these stories, essentially helping helping to establish context. And at other times, fungi are integral to story content, unquote. Honestly, this makes me think of our discussion about like ayahuasca ceremonies Mm -hmm. in our Mm -hmm. Gretel and Hansel episode. Like, for the uninitiated, these ceremonies can have long-lasting effects that quite literally ruin your life and smash your perception of reality. Like, if they aren't led by an experienced shaman or someone with good intentions. So, I'm wondering, like, could it be here that these, like, herbs and medicines are being used in kind of the same way? Like, a group of American travelers trapped and at the mercy of the Harga slowly unravel because of their use of, like, drugs and hallucinogens. And, like, not only that, but when Christian is put in the bear suit, he is drugged but fully conscious. Like, he's unable to move or defend himself or speak on his own behalf. So that just, like adds another layer to the horror of this movie. 
Is that oh, like... Oh, yes. You think that you are doing some... Like, you're like, okay, this is these are plants and they have medicinal properties, so it can't be that bad, right? But they're actually like full-blown, like, <laughs> ruin your day hallucinogens. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like... Oh, man. And, like, you don't know what you're being given, really. You're just like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll trip all day, I guess. Oh, my God. I think that was one of the surprising things for me watching this film the first time. I was like, why are they taking drugs from strangers? (laughs) I was shocked. Obviously, obviously, they did not participate in the D.A.R.E. program. (laughs) Or they did, because that made drug taking worse, Abby, remember? (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) And I just always thought that that was a really reckless decision made by these students. Well, you know... (laughs) Which is very horror film-esque, you know? Yes. When I see, like, the Harga people, I am like, okay, they understand the properties of these plants, and they understand what each one is used for, and they are... They either have a tolerance built up or they're just used to it. But <laughs> Amer- Americans are just like, woohoo, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's so I just thought that was a really interesting thing. But in terms of a fairy tale, it absolutely makes sense. And it, like I said, in like a horror film, it absolutely makes sense that the main characters are maybe making choices that mm, don't really go well for them eventually you know like in a horror film like the teenagers are doing drugs they're having lots of sex and they're drinking and stuff and then they die exactly and (laughs) yeah and then you know in fairy tales um i this is just i'm thinking off the top of my head i know and there's one interpretation of little red riding hood where she goes off the path to collect flowers Um, But I think there's another version where she goes off the path to pick mushrooms. Right. Now, not all mushrooms have, you know, make you trip. But um, if we want to look at it this way, you know, like if we want to look at that metaphorically, like Red Riding Hood leaves the path and does something that gets her in trouble or Mm -hmm. like makes her meet the wrong people. Right. And, you know, that kind of is what happens here. Um only you could argue that these are the right people. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit about brainwashing, gaslighting, cults, and codependency in Midsummer, right? Meow. So we all know Christian sucks. <sighs> yeah. And if you watch the director's cut, um, he sucks even more. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's even more apparent that he is a gaslighter and he is incredibly insecure yes um there is probably the best scene that was cut where he and danny are arguing about the harga and finally danny brings up that he doesn't love her anymore and he says that she you know like well you picked all these flowers for me and that made me feel bad because when you do stuff like that like it makes me feel all this guilt and like you're guilt chipping me and reminding me that i'm a terrible boyfriend And she's like, well, I was being kind when I picked those for you. (laughs) Like, she's like, what? It's completely and totally screwed up. He's such a turd. Yeah. And, you know, 
a lot of, I'm probably going to get a lot of heat for this, but um, I don't necessarily think the director's cut is a better version of the film. Mm. It's a longer version. <laughs> and there is some interesting cut scenes um, that I wish we're, we could talk about, but not everyone has access to the director's cut, so I'm not going to go into big detail. I might write a blog post about it. Um it makes Danny's decision at the end much more sinister um, when you don't see the director's cut, if Ah. that makes sense. Yeah. Because we are shown more of Christian being an absolute asshole in the director's cut. So (laughs) um, it makes more sense that she wants to burn him alive, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Um, So Pele, in contrast to Christian, is kind and attentive to Danny's needs. And according to the article, Is Midsummer a Feminist Fable? Quote, Pele has achieved heartthrob status, but he naturally has a dark side. After all, he lured his friends to the commune to be sacrificed, foreshadowed in the painting shown before the film in which he is depicted as the Pied Piper, unquote. All right. So I, I too fell for the charms of Pele. <laughs> but then I stopped one time when I was watching this movie and like really thought to myself, this man is literally trying to steal his best friend's girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> and maybe maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but it's like if I was in a social setting and Pele did the same thing to me or to like one of my friends I'd be like "Mm, this is kind of a red flag like because it seems a little bit more than being friendly um he's I disagree but I can see why you might think that yeah I I don't feel like he's hitting on her but we'll I'll we'll talk about that in a minute he seems like a wolf in sheep's clothing which may sound kind of yes like yeah it sounds kind of harsh, but really, like, that's what he is to me anyway. Mm-hmm. And he's supposed to be, like, very sweet and inviting because that's how he catches you. But he is also very observant and he goes for Danny's triggers. Like, yeah. he is always triggering her in order to create an emotional bond, which is so toxic and yeah. highly abusive. Yes. So, like, it's almost worth asking who is worse, Christian or Pele? Because, <laughs> like, he seems so sweet at first and, like, so nice and soft-spoken, but that doesn't mean necessarily that he is a nice person. But No, I think you hit the nail on the head and he, he does trigger her intentionally a lot. Yes. And that's really very, like you said, very abusive. Yeah. Very rude. <laughs> it's super rude. So... <laughs> So I'm going to go ahead and say that they both suck because (laughs) (laughs) Christian is great at gaslighting Danny and he's avoidant when she tries to talk to him or like understand miscommunications that happen. And he's very dismissive of her feelings while often putting her on the spot, like when she doesn't want to eat mushrooms with the group. And Danny, even though she's really intelligent enough to pick up on these things, is she's extremely fragile and lonely so she just kind of goes along with what he has to offer and like listen no one is perfect and people will always have their flaws but i think because of danny's background and past traumas she's obsessed with these kinds of men and 
I say obsessed because she forms really strong attachments to both of them, mm. even when it causes her harm and leads to, like, really, I would say compulsive behaviors. Mm. Yeah, I do agree with that. Um, but I don't think Pele is trying to steal Danny away in a romantic sense. I don't even feel like he's flirting with her. Mm. I think he really just wants to have Danny join the cult. I think that is his motivation fully. Because you're right. He is preying on her trauma, which is a classic conversion tactic for cults as well. And it's sinister, for sure, even though I don't think he thinks it is. Mm -hmm. I think Pele is brainwashed, and he is using the tactics used on him to then in turn brainwash Danny. Oh, yeah. And there's one point where Pele says that his parents died in a fire. (laughs) (laughs) I can only assume his parents were used in the uh, the temple burning ritual at one point. Yeah. I know that this celebration happens only 90 years. I'm not sure what happens every 90 years, though. Because the voluntary suicide happens... Every time somebody turns 72, 3, 4, whatever. Right. So that doesn't happen every 90 years. Right. Um, and then the the May Queen happens every year because there's the pictures of her, of all mm. the different May Queens. So I'm not sure what exactly happens every 90 years, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> maybe, these, maybe they bring outsiders in every 90 years. I'm not quite sure. I don't think it's ever really explained. But I'm guessing that Pele's parents were part of the temple burning ritual. And, like, I think if we look at this film in a literal sense, take away the queer subtext that we're going to talk about at the end, take away the fairy tale aspect of it, the mythology aspect of it, if we just look at this film literally, Mm. the ending is not happy. (laughs) And this was something that I didn't really think about until very recently because I like to look at this film like a fairy tale and like a queer film. And in all of those interpretations, for me, the ending is happy. But quite literally, the ending isn't at all. Right. Really. Because Danny leaves one codependent relationship for another one immediately. Like, she takes no time for herself. Does she even know who she really is? I don't think she does. And she doesn't give herself the chance to figure that out. She can't be alone, and I think that's problematic. Because being alone is not a bad thing. Being lonely can be. But being alone, I think, is really important for women, especially women do like and i i do think that community is important absolutely humans in general and again especially women and queer people thrive on community and people who understand them but i also think it's important for us to not depend solely on someone or something else and danny is never able to do that at least in the context of this film and i would argue even before christian comes into the picture she's had to deal with her sister right and she has sort of had to keep her sister in check because her sister has is is bipolar and that is extremely draining for people who who are bipolar first of all it is extremely draining 
and it's a, it's draining for family. It can be. Mm-hmm. Mental illness is really tough to deal with for the people who experience it and the people who experience it with that person. And um, one thing that I think, I'm just going to add this real quick. One thing that I think gets a bad rap is bipolar disorder. Yeah. And it kind of really sucks that the sister did this awful thing in the film because that can be really triggering for people with bipolar disorder to see their disorder put on screen and made into a very like made into like a villain almost you know Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, um so that's just really tough in general but going back to danny i think that um danny having to deal with all these people and feel like she has to care for all of these people she's never really given a chance to care for herself Mm -hmm. so there's a great video essay about this film by acolytes of horror and the host shares a quote from canadian novelist douglas copeland and the quote is remember the time you feel lonely is the time you most need to be by yourself life's cruelest irony And the host also mentions that by the end of the film, Danny is cut off from society and from reality, which, again, is what cults try to do when they indoctrinate people, try to find people without family and cut them off from whatever connection they do have in the real world. And that not only and not only does Danny fall for the Hargas daylight horror, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, but the audience does, too. And listen, I definitely see this side of the story. And the host talks about how he doesn't feel like this is a fairy tale ending. But to argue where I personally stand, like I mentioned in the previous discussion, fairy tales are horrific. Like yeah. they usually they usually end with the main antagonist being tortured by the heroine in some grisly way, usually with dismemberment or being drowned or fire, right? right. And that is what happens here. So I do still think that it is a fairy tale ending. But it is ext- it's morally ambiguous, for sure. Yeah. You know, you're right. <laughs> Thanks. This could also speak to abuse cycles. Like, people who have experienced similar tragedies or challenges form what is called a trauma bond. And that's exactly how Pele gets to Danny. And I, I think for the Harga, this becomes a huge part of their culture. Because after witnessing literal human sacrifice, though they're desensitized to just how fucked it is, basically, they all form this trauma bond. And Danny has experienced such loss that it would make sense that she becomes the May Queen because her trauma really takes the cake here. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, it's very intense. It is. <laughs> um, according to Ali Hinman, quote, after I processed the old lady's mangled body bouncing off of a rock like a basketball, Ugh. I realized there was one aspect of the story that was truly scary. Danny's codependence. Yeah. It is scary how Danny allows herself to be treated like shit so that she won't be alone. But that's even more terrifying but what's even more terrifying is how quickly she gets 
swept up in a relationship like that. Yeah. Danny watches the Hargas, the Hargans' bloody rituals in horror and even tries to leave. But once she realizes that this place will offer her a home, she is suddenly willing to forget about the rituals and accept her new family. Ugh. Danny's allegiance seems undying, but is simultaneously so fragile. She left one unhealthy relationship for another in a matter of days. Unquote. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So if we look at the story in this way, I think the Harga give Danny a false sense of independence. Yep. She asks at one point if Christian can come with her and in, like in the carriage after she is crowned May Queen. And one of the Harga women says, no, the queen must ride alone, which is most definitely a, a powerful moment in the film. But if we look at the Harga as a toxic community, it's a lie. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Well, because they're planning a whole other very sinister ritual and that involves Christian. And they're like, mm, well, we're going to pretend that this is about you and that it makes you feel powerful. But in all actuality, like we need Christian for something else. So, no, he can't. <laughs> you know, in the director's cut, um, Josh is holding a book that talks about how, uh, I think it's the youth arc. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, the runes. Oh, right, right, right. The youth arc runes, how, um, like they're like a cipher and, um, that they could actually like connect with, um, the Nazi party. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's the, the book that he's holding and um, Danny's like, what is this? And he's like, oh, like, it's about, you know, the ruins and stuff and how they might connect to Nazis and whatever. And Pele is pissed. He's like, yeah, Josh carries that around to make me mad. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And so there is a interesting kind of Nazi power kind of symbolism kind of snuck in the director's cut. So if you want to look at the Harga as secret Nazis, <laughs> you could kind of see that as well. But that scene is cut out of the of the theatrical release, which I thought was kind of interesting because yeah. it doesn't really go anywhere. Right. It's that it's that scene. And then you don't ever really see anything that connects it again. Subtextually, of course, but textually not really in my opinion right um so yeah let us know if you think the harga are scary motherfuckers that <laughs> we that danny should have run away from yes uh so let's quickly talk about horror and broad daylight uh disorientation and a feeling of being lost literally and figuratively is a huge part of this film characters are constantly trying to figure out where they are or even when they are. Yeah. This is extremely fascinating to me, especially since 95% um, of this film takes place during the day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and according to Raymond DeLuca, quote, from the outset, the characters in Midsummer are constantly trying to reestablish their spatial coordinates. How long is the drive? Where are we? Where are we going? 
Uh, the film's cinematography enacts this sort of spatial disorientation. The camera unexpectedly loops over the images in a full 360 degree rotation, capturing characters upside down and repeatedly tilts up at the sky so the sunbeams drench Aster's imagescapes. Uh, indeed, in Midsummer, space is replaced by light. The screen itself dis- dissolves before our eyes and things haphazardly materialize, immaterialize, including the people who keep going missing. The haunting atmosphere of Midsummer reminds us that light rays rarely admit as straight lines, but as beams that curl and circle and envelop. There's nowhere to hide in Halsingland. We're filled with dread despite everything being in such plain view, precisely because there is nothing to grab a hold of in Midsummer. It's all just a matter of light. Everything is subject to vanishing." Unquote. I love that. I do too. And I think this also plays really well into what cults do to their members. Like yeah. they are they are not supposed to be comfortable after a while because no. they need to be controlled. And it's been studied over and over again and you don't expect bad things to happen in broad daylight. You don't expect to see a paralyzed man sewn into a bear suit and then burned alive in broad daylight. <laughs> <laughs> However, because this cult is so cut off from the rest of the world, they can afford to do that kind of stuff, and it becomes desensitizing after a while. So, of course, they see no issue with it. It's everyday life for them. And for Danny, it's more abrupt. And I think her dreams also play a huge role in how frightening the daylight is, because she's so frightened of being abandoned at night And she almost expects it, probably because of the trauma of her entire family dying in their sleep. Really, it it sticks with her. She has that dream of all of them taking off in the middle of the night in the car and driving away. Yeah. So she's afraid of being abandoned by her friends under the cover of night. So when she is again practically orphaned, it adds another layer of distress when it comes during the day when it is least expected. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to quote the video essay by The Take uh, about Midsummer again. Uh, One of the characters says that Ruben was a product of inbreeding. And then he goes, he says, like, all of our oracles are deliberate products of inbreeding, which we're we're not going to get into this part of... There's just so much to talk about. We're not getting into this part of the movie, guys. (laughs) Everyone, sorry. Uh, Okay, so uh, this openness extends to their gruesome suicide ritual. Um, Another character says, those two who jumped had just reached the end of their Hargo life life cycle, and um, you need to understand that it was a great joy for them. So in Midsummer, everything is right out... Like, in the Harga, everything is right out in the open in broad yeah. daylight. The The horrors of the Harga are never hidden. And they don't sneak around or hide any of their beliefs from the grad students ever. Mm-hmm. I just, I just think it's interesting that the grad students don't ever see their demise coming. Right. Because of this. Like, I feel like it seems obvious. Like, the, I feel like the audience going in... And maybe this is a horror thing. You know, the audience going in knows that everyone's going to die. 
Yes. But I think the difference is that horror movies normally do take place at night. A lot of the horror does take place at night. We're not so sure where or where it is or what's going on because we can't see it. Mm -hmm. But we can see everything plainly in the Harga. So I always thought that that was really interesting that um, the characters can't see it coming. But maybe they don't want to. Maybe. That's a very good point. (laughs) Maybe they don't want to see how scary it is. I mean, at one point, Danny asks, like, is it scary? Like, is this virtual that we're about to go look at really scary? And it turns out it is. (laughs) And she's like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Right. And Josh knows about it. And Josh is still horrified about it. But he knows what's about to happen. Yeah. And, uh... It's like they are gluttons for punishment almost. Like they know that this stuff is going to, especially Josh almost, like he knows that this stuff is like really out there for him and his, you know, beliefs and stuff. But because he's an anthropologist, he lets it happen. Yeah. I think that's a big part of being an anthropologist though, is that you can't, you have to look at it very objectively. You can't really insert your own feelings into it. So on one front, Josh is already, like, kind of not an expert in his field, but he's definitely honing those skills, and he mm-hmm. is prepared for what that life is like, and the rest mm-hmm. of them are not. <laughs> so, Right. I mean, and there is a cut scene in the director's cut where Josh gets mad at, at Christian, and he's like, I don't even know why you're an academic. Like, you don't care about anything. Right. And... Uh, Josh does care. He cares a lot about yeah. what he's learning, what he is seeing. Um, almost too much, though, where yeah. it sort of becomes appropriated almost. Yeah. He wants to take pictures of things that he's not supposed to take pictures of, and that's what eventually makes him die. Yep. Is because he crosses too far. Yeah. So... Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about womanhood, sex, and the feminine rage in Midsummer. According to Alexandra Suneta, quote, Midsummer was the perfect summarization of female rage, sexism, and how patriarchal society breaks down women every step of the way, unquote. And Caitlin Kennedy says, quote, this history is an undercurrent of the understood emotional intelligence of womanhood, and it's vitally important to understand the commune at the heart of the film, the Harga in Midsummer. The Harga women are returned to the position of authority. In the most obvious sense, a woman serves as the spiritual, perhaps even political and religious leader of the community. A literal wise woman guides everything from the integration of the newcomers to the religious and cultural ceremonies and even the selection of mating couples. It's not only interesting to see a woman helming such a violent community, but to notice that she rules from a place of nurturing. The wise woman is depicted as gentle and understanding despite the horror that she is carrying out. These women hold all sexual power. They choose their mates. They use ancient magic to sway outcomes. They're leaders in the community and, most glaringly, they share in a sexual ritual that is imbued with female power and highlights sexual pleasure." Now, there are definitely a lot of men who have prominent roles in the Harga uh, as well, but 
they're not really the focus. Uh, the women definitely are more of, of a focus in this film, which is pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandra Huber says the excessiveness of Danny's costume by the end scene of the film is a celebration of all the horror of the horror and anger let raw like a dream. It looks different in the light of day. It looks campy, excessive. She is both bride and bridegroom, birth and death, complete union, complete loss. Danny transforms throughout the course of Midsummer and quite literally expands or grows in excess of herself, her environment, and the structures that both bind her, grows in excess, uh, bind her and hold her. By the end of the film, Danny will not only externalize her rage, horror, and grief, but incriminately become covered in a lush overgrowth, livid, grotesque, campy, and sometimes even pulsating blossoms, unquote. And we'll talk more about camp in the next topic, but by the end of the film, Danny is no longer holding anything back. She has become one with nature and in turn one with herself. She, like, everything has come to the forefront. I mean, and it starts out when she gets there, she sees grass in her hand when she's tripping. Mm-hmm. And by the end, the grass in her hand becomes a flower crown, a flower dress, robe, basically. Mm-hmm. And she looks like a monster. <laughs> she, <laughs> she when does. she's like, kind of like coughing because of the smoke, and she's like, like and she <laughs> looks monstrous. <laughs> So I th- think that that's really neat that all of her rage has basically blossomed all over her, mm-hmm. which is neat. And Hooper goes on to say, tears are often an inner effect like grief. Yet in a film where all of the darkness is unleashed into a garish light of day, tears too become a public phenomenon, a rite. One of the most visceral moments in Midsummer comes after Danny is crowned May Queen. Here, Danny's full grief and rage spill over and are mimed back at her, not by Christian, but rather by a group of Hargo women who are not there merely to listen to or comfort her, but to mirror her rage, to conjure it up and throw it out into exteriority to awaken and vanquish it, unquote. So Huber goes on to explain what this is, which is keening. To keen derives from Gaelic, meaning a vocalized cry, and is an ancient ancient Irish funeral lament. Uh, performed by groups of women at wakes, and it's prevalent in pre-Christian Ireland. Uh, keening is both a sacred improvised chant and an extremely raw mode of mourning. It is a song, a poem, a wail, and is made up of the salutation, introduction, the dirge, verse, and the goal, cry. Its purpose is grounded in waking the dead and helping spirits cross over into the afterlife. The keening scene in Midsummer is perhaps one of the heaviest in the film, but it is also one of the most cathartic and would be less so if it did not have a bit of camp and melodrama in its tone, unquote. Mm. According to Savina Petkova, Breath's tragic alter ego is the scream. Danny's shrieks parallel the narrative itself. First, a verbalization of trauma following the loss of her family, then an internalization of grief to a response of separation. In this last moment, Danny is joined by the women of the Swedish commune and their synchronized cries 
elevate her individual pain to universal shared mourning, unquote. Uh, Petkova goes on to compare the female orgasm to the screams that we hear in Midsummer. Quote, Danny achieves self-reliance by becoming the May Queen and her ecstasy releases the suffocating tension to the point when she can breathe again. The gasp for air as she smiles parallels an orgasmic experience, a dispersal of self and fragments of pleasure and then assemble anew. She isn't the chick that doesn't enjoy sex anymore, unquote. And I really like this because at the beginning of the film, Christian's friends say that Danny doesn't like sex and Christian needs to find someone who does. Ugh. Uh, yeah, disgusting. <laughs> but if we look at Danny as a queer character, it would make sense that she does not maybe enjoy having sex with Christian. <laughs> <laughs> And that by connecting with the women at the Harga, or the Harga in general, Danny is finally able to scream with pleasure. Um, Petkova also says that even before Danny keens with the women, uh, that the maypole dance that Danny does with the women could also be seen as like a sex scene, or at least a scene where Danny finally feels some sort of pleasure. Uh, mm -hmm. They say, quote, the bright natural light and the switch from static to handheld camera movements mimic Danny's dizziness as her shallow breathing mutes all other diegetic sound. A heart thumping and deepening breath form the rhythm of this dance of life, unquote. Petrova then says, quote, Danny's afterglow is celebrated by the whole community as they match her new status as royalty with physical elevation. She is brought up into the air on a physical pedestal. A carriage takes her off to her newly attained sacred duties, and she sits at the head of the festive dinner table. She attains all insignia, including a bigger crown of actually breathing flowers, of power which is traditionally inscribed into a patriarchal male model. Danny, Danny's attainment of power coincides with self-assertion and post-orgasmic metamorphosis, unquote. So I thought that that was a really interesting observation. Uh, Petrova even notes that Danny asking if Christian can come with her. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty on the nose that this is meant to reflect a sex scene. Yeah. And, and nope, the queen must come alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, she doesn't need a cisgender man to feel pleasure. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure Aster did not intend this, but I think that that's a really interesting look at that scene and the subtext in it. Oh, definitely. That brings us to our final thought. Camp, queerness, and Christianity in Midsommar. So... According to Emily Vanderwerf, uh, Midsummer is a movie about a woman who hangs out with a bunch of guys, never quite feeling welcome or like any of them understand her. She's always out of place, disconnected from what's happening, even as they laugh and celebrate jovially around her. Cis women can certainly have this experience when hanging out with their boyfriend's pals, but male group dynamics typically shift to avoid seeming too bro-y for good or for ill, mm -hmm. when they know a woman is present. For whatever reason, the guys Danny goes to Sweden with don't shift their behavior in similar ways. When Danny goes, What Danny goes through is almost a universal experience for trans women before they come out. Mm. They're at the party, 
but not of it. Always feeling like there's some joke they're just not getting, unquote. So Midsommar, subtextually, is a trans narrative. Vanderwerf also says, quote, I don't mean to suggest that Midsommar is an intentional trans allegory. Astor has said that he views Danny as a bit of a proxy for himself within the film, which is interesting on a, quote, guy tries to imagine what's going on in a woman's head, unquote, level, which Astor is very good at doing this, where ma many male directors aren't, unquote. Uh, but that's the beauty of subtext. <laughs> Like, mm -hmm. Vanderwerf also states, after an entire movie of trying to make sense of Christian's moods, she finds herself competing for the title of May Queen with the other women of the village. Her face shines with happiness and abandon. And when one of her and when one of the other girls starts talking to her in Harga, which is a language invented for the film, Danny finds she can just naturally speak it. It's an incredibly cathartic moment. She displays an ease she's never felt before, and it carries through the rest of the movie, as she finds herself drawn deeper and deeper into the Harga's lifestyle and rituals. When Danny discovered she could speak on the, to the other women in the village, I felt, this is Emily Vanderwerf, I felt deep inside me the sensations I had felt the first few times the women I knew saw me and knew me for who I really was. There is an immense power of being seen and being known, a power that many cis people don't even realize they have possessed since the moment of their birth, unquote. I think that that's a really interesting observation. Um, According to Juan Barquin, quote, where hereditary felt like two souls at odds with each other in one body, Midsommar is a work of cathartic camp entirely dedicated to the journey that Danny must take towards enlightenment. To cite Susan Sontag's notes on camp, camp is a vision of the world in terms of style, but a particular kind of style. It is the love of the exaggerated, the off of things being what they are not, unquote. And we mentioned The Wizard of Oz earlier uh, when we discussed fairy tales, but Barquin mentions it again in their article um, in regards to it being a queer narrative and how that relates to Midsummer. Uh, they say, quote, and the Hargo, where Midsummer's characters head to find either peace or death, is a deeply theatrical realm. It's self-described as silly, and presented as a place where artifice is an ideal altern alternative to a world grounded in reality. This notion, in and of itself, is inherently queer and camp. But the way Astor frames the warmth of the Harga as a stark contrast to the emotional stagnancy of city life and all the grief that comes with it isn't exactly unique. It's where his description of Midsummer as the Wizard of Oz for perverts proves more apt a descriptor than expected. Kansas and the Land of Oz exist in as much visual and thematic contrast as the Harga and the city that Danny is from, the former depicted by sliding into glorious technicolor and the later leaving behind the winter for the beauty of Midsummer. If the Harga is Oz, there must be a tornado. Esser takes us through a turbulent flight, a camera that literally turns the film on its head, and a walk through the woods to a land of wonder, where Oz had munchkins singing and welcoming Dorothy to the place she could find herself and her new family. The Harga has a commune willing to incorporate Danny into every aspect of their lives, unquote. I think it's also been said that Dorothy is trying to get home from Oz. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the film, she gets home. 
And she realizes that everyone in Oz is a reflection of her family. Right. So Oz was home still. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, So Barquin has a real kicker of a quote here. So listen up. It's really good. (laughs) Aster frames everyone in this group of visitors except for Danny as an outsider looking in. Whether that's a heterosexual man applying his fetish gaze onto every woman or a straight couple unwilling to open their mind to the way a community they view as quote unquote other functions or two anthropologists who seek to exploit the culture that they've entered without ever truly engaging with it. Ultimately, everyone is about as dense as a bachelorette in a queer bar except for (laughs) Danny. The character quoted rather explicitly as part of the family, unquote. Mm. Yeah. So now, of course, Danny is seemingly appalled by all of the Hargo's rituals, especially the ones that involve death. She has a very traumatic relationship with death, especially suicide and murder. Right. right. So due to her sister's act. Um, so when she sees the elders willingly jump to their death and then in the director's cut, there is a little boy who is willing to die for the river goddess and she is triggered by it. Mm-hmm. The Harga have such an intimate, peaceful relationship with death that Danny doesn't understand yet. But okay, so eventually Danny is initiated into the Harga and I want us all to please not take this literally. I have a very hard time looking at this film literally because there is so much amazing subtext to it. But this initiation into the Harga, this new understanding of death as well as rebirth, feels a lot to me like a queer person who was brought up in a conservative household, shedding like their closed-minded beliefs and accepting the very liberal beliefs of the LGBT plus community and the beliefs within themselves. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she literally sentenced Christian to death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and with this in mind, I think it's also interesting that Christian is made into a bear when he's killed. We briefly talked about sometimes men in fairy tales will become beasts, you know, because they've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. But if we look at like Christian as a bear with this killing the conservative concept in mind, according to Daniel S. Paraza, quote, bears, depending on context, might imply one thing or its exact opposite in Christian iconography. But the bear has often symbolized cruelty. However, Esperanza also states, quote, old legends, some of them compiled in uh, Physiologus, I think is how you say it. Mm -hmm. It's a Christian text written um, or compiled in Greek by an unknown author. Um, they would claim bear cubs were born shapeless and that their mother would then give them form by licking them into shape. And this was, <laughs> yeah, and this was understood by many as a symbol of Christianity, which reforms and regenerates the sinner. Uh, so because of that reason, bears eventually became symbols of the church itself. In fact, according to Ferguson, the many legends, including saints taming bears, can be interpreted as metaphors for the overcoming of sin, unquote. So Danny burning Christian in the bear costume could be interpreted as her burning Christianity itself. 
Or even more specifically, in my opinion, because the bear is seen as something that that molds the sinner, conversion therapy initiated by the church. So, Abby, what do you think of that? <laughs> mm, well, okay. So, first of all, I think this is a really compelling way to look at the film and how Danny's character was written. However... I almost feel like she's asexual or she has a lot of gender fluidity in a way. Like, true, I think that her bond with the Harga women becomes, it's kind of the missing link for her, but I think mostly she is trying to understand herself and her place in the world. Um, she's a psychology major, <laughs> which means she's got to be fascinated by human behavior. And, um, like Christian and all of his friends are anthropology majors, obviously, and they're men trying to understand different cultures while Danny is just trying to get to the heart of what it means to be human and cognitive and alive, ironically, because she is surrounded by death for the entirety of the film. Yeah, um, okay, so I agree that there is a very strong possibility that Danny is asexual. Um, there is a huge misconception that asexual people don't like to have sex, though, and that's not necessarily true. It's not always oh. true, at least. Okay, yep. Yeah, many asexual people describe sex as, like, an itch that they have to scratch, and most asexuals do masturbate. Okay. Yeah. So Danny, again, as a queer person, could easily identify this way. And it would make sense. Yeah. Well, I think that it, it it's really interesting that you uh, brought up what you just said, because I think that this could really swing either way. Like, I could absolutely see the queer subtext in this film. But for me, it isn't so much about Danny's sexuality. It's kind of her lack thereof. And I think the moment that this really rings true is when she walks in on the sex ritual that happens with Christian. And the woman that she's with says, um, you know, no, that's not for us. And then she sees what's going on and she's literally so upset by it that she th she throws up. She has a physical reaction to it. And I know that at first glance, it's mainly because we're meant to feel like she's really heartbroken to see Christian, like, <laughs> getting it in with someone else. But I think more than that, sex for her might be upsetting in general. Kind of like what we talked about earlier, how, like, she's not really into sex with Christian anyway. Um, I think that there are so many stories from the female perspective that focus heavily on sex but I think this mm -hmm. one is maybe for women who don't really care that much about it or, like, don't really put that much thought into it. It's just kind of like, um, not a side piece, but it's not, like, a main focus in their life. Um, and maybe they just want to find their truth or their inner selves without having to feel the pressure of being sexualized. So mm -hmm. this... This, for me, for my interpretation, just really rang true with, like, asexuality for what, uh, at least 
mm-hmm. as far as like what I understand about it. I mean, I'm glad that you clarified some things earlier <laughs> because um, I had the wrong impression of it. But I think because Danny is neither feminine or masculine, she's just very like natural. And you can see this even in her wardrobe, like her clothing is comfortable. Her hair is always pulled back into an easy bun. Like the only thing missing for her to really be herself is to let go of a relationship that isn't serving her and to kind of look inwards at what she really wants. And that could be a queer relationship or none at all. Well, her name is very androgynous, which is typical for final girls in horror films anyway. And I think Mm -hmm. part of her androgyny might come from the fact that she is Aster's stand-in in the story, since this is based on a breakup that he went through, which is why I can definitely see the trans narrative in this. And if she is asexual, it's still a queer story, because asexuals Mm. are members of the community. Um, I also don't necessarily agree with you that you can't be solely masculine or feminine to be asexual. There are plenty of people who aren't androgynous that are asexuals, but I see what you are saying. Like, Danny doesn't really stand out as femme or mask until she starts wearing Harga clothing at the end. And then, of course, she's covered in campy, colorful rainbow flowers and I think what you're thinking of (laughs) and I think what you're thinking of is sex aversion and not asexuality okay yeah that makes more yeah sex aversion would be somebody who is completely and totally against sex in in all ways asexuals um don't have sexual drive don't have like sexual desire um, it's not like a primal thing. It's more of, like I said, like an itch that needs to be scratched kind of. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I don't, th- I can see Danny being asexual, but I, I think what you're describing is sexual aversion, um, which could easily be what she is going through. She could have had a traumatic sexual experience. And so right. she does not want to have sex with Christian because of it we don't know oh okay see that opens up my eyes so much more (laughs) yeah no no problem I mean like that is um that could I mean I think her not being not wanting sex could easily be from something traumatic like what you're I think what you're trying to explain um especially since she has a really rocky unstable relationship with Christian already Right. It might not be a a queer thing at all. It could be a traumatic thing. But that's what's so great about this film. This film, you can look at this film in so many different ways. You could have so many different opinions on it. You can have, you can look at all of the texts and subtexts differently. You can interpret it all differently. There's so much here. And we are over an hour and a half into this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) And we haven't even talked about everything. 
<laughs> like there's so much more to discuss and I was like I was saying I might even write a few blog posts about how I feel about certain aspects of this film um I mean and we kind of rushed through the religious part of it like real quick at the end there um just because of that I thought that was kind of an interesting thing but we didn't even really get to discuss it in detail like there's just so much more to this film that I think a lot of people give it credit for and and I think that, um, I don't know, I think Ari Aster is, is really an intelligent filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that's awesome. I really enjoy his films, even though Hereditary broke me in half and I'll never watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that says something to me. That says something that I, I I was talking to Luke about this. He was like, what's the saddest movie you've ever seen? And I was like, I don't know. Hereditary was pretty sad. <laughs> I ended up choosing Dancer in the Dark. That movie is, is brutal. And so is AI Artificial Intelligence. That movie also Oof. breaks me, but... I think that that means something. <laughs> Absolutely. He's a fantastic storyteller and he his his feminine perspective is always surprisingly very accurate at least for me when I watch these films. So bravo to Ari Aster for that <laughs> because not a lot of people get it right, but he definitely does. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with you. Wow. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Season nine is done. And uh, Abby and I, as always, like to take some time off between seasons. So we will be doing just that. However, Abby is going on maternity leave. So yay, new baby. Yay, I'm so excited. (laughs) After this short break, um, I'll be returning with some guest hosts while Abby is taking care of her, her little baby boy. Um, I'll make sure to keep you all in the loop on when those episodes will be released and what's going on with that. I still have to think about that. I'll be doing that over break. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you like what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash Nancy. And we're still in the process of rebuilding our website, um, but I'll make sure to update you all when that's finished as well. So make sure you follow us on social media. Yeah, we're on Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please. Yes, um, if you have um, iTunes, make sure you write a review on iTunes. Uh, Give us a five-star review, write a review, let us know how much you love the show. It really helps other people find our episodes, so please do that if you have an iPhone and use iTunes to listen. Uh, Don't forget, everyone, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. Check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye!